Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Before we go any further, let's just pause and take a moment to recognize the weightiness of the topic that we're discussing this morning. I mean, the throne room of God. These are, this is an idea that is too big for our finite human minds to grasp, and yet we want to try to look and see with John this incredible vision and yet there's so much weightiness to it. I had a chuckle this morning because as I went to print my sermon, several copies of it that go to people in the sound booth and other places, as well as my copy, I accidentally printed all the copies on cardstock. Somebody had left that in the copier. But it was as if the copy machine was telling me, you cannot print a sermon on Revelation 4 and the throne room of God on plain paper. It must be printed on weighted paper because it is so weighty. So... It was not lost on me. What is the nature of ultimate reality? Who or what is God? This is a question that every worldview must answer. It is basic. It is fundamental. And different worldviews answer that question with saying that God is one. As we say, God is three persons in one essence. There are those who will say there are many gods. There are some who say that God is sort of within all of his creation or that he is around and he is an abstract vague source of energy in the world. There are those who say that God created and yet stepped outside and is not involved personally in his world. Different ways of answering the question, who or what is God? But it's essential. See, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, based on Holy Scripture, teaches us that the primary purpose of our lives is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But you can't glorify a God that you don't know. You, you can't enjoy God if you don't really know who God is. And this is why we need the Bible. Because the Bible, from beginning to end, is a book about God. Amen? It is about God. We look to it for moral teaching. We look to it for guidance and direction and inspiration and encouragement. And certainly it brings all of those things. But we must never forget the Bible is first and most importantly a book about God. It tells us who God is. It tells us God's character and how he interacts with the world and how we should interact with God. The purpose of the Bible is to introduce us to a holy and righteous and just and powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God who is perfectly good, who always does what is right, but who is patient and merciful and kind and loves his creation, most especially us. Men and women made in the image and likeness of God, created to reflect our very creator. And the story of Scripture tells us that the more we get to know God, the true God, not some false God of our own fabrication, not an arrogant king or a harsh, cold judge, not an aloof Santa Claus figure, not a power-hungry despot or a genie in a bottle who's just there to give us our next wish. No, the more you come to know and understand the true and living God, the more you will want to know him. And you will trust him. And you will love him. 
And you will want to worship him and to glorify him with every fiber of your being. That is what we desire to do this morning by the grace of God, is just come to grasp the greatness of God just a little bit more. And that should be our desire every day, that we should want to know the true and living God. Now, many theologians in the past couple of generations have pointed out that the themes of God's greatness and His glory that fill the pages of Scripture are sadly sometimes missing or weak in our contemporary theology and in our contemporary churches. Such theology suffers from what Timothy George has called doxological deficit. How's that for a term? You're going to throw it around this week in the lunchroom. I know it. I know it. It's doxological deficit. As a self-professed theology nerd, I like it. And what does it mean? What doxa? Well, it just means glory, right? To bring glory to God, to praise God. That is what we do in the doxology is that we praise God. It's what we've just done this morning. And we have to be careful as the people of God that we don't suffer from doxological deficit, meaning our view of God is too small. It is too weak. It lacks the grandness of this God that we see in Scripture, this God that we get this tiny little glimpse through John sitting on the throne. God's attributes and His actions, He is worthy of our worship and honor and praise. And He is and has been and will be worshiped forevermore. We simply get swept up into that worship. I think it's true what A.W. Tozer said, one of my favorite quotes. You've probably heard it before if you've been around for a while, and if you stick around, trust me, you'll hear it again. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Our concept of God, it frames all of our reality. And of course, what we do with that and our response to that. And included in that is what he thinks about us and his love for us and his mercy. And this is why we need Revelation 4. It offers us a brief glimpse into the glories of heaven. So Revelation 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I heard speaking with me was like a trumpet and said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. As I said in week one of this series, John is attempting to describe the indescribable. And at the beginning of this chapter, he says this phrase, there before me, as I looked there before me, it's actually in the original language, it is an imperative, it is a command, and it gets kind of smoothed over in this modern translation, but it's really, John is saying, look, behold, the throne of God. He wants us to see the throne. And the throne means that there is a supreme headquarters for the universe. There's a seat of ultimate power and authority, the throne room of God Almighty. All of creation operates at the command of the king who is sitting on the throne. The throne is the single most dominant image in the book of Revelation. Forty-seven times it is mentioned and alluded to many more than that. In this image of God on the throne, it was rooted in the Old Testament prophetic writings. It was celebrated by the psalmist. For example, Old Testament worship leaders, the sons of Korah, exclaimed in Psalm 47, God reigns over the earth. God is seated on His holy throne. So I think there are five different aspects of this throne room scene that will will help us to organize 
our thoughts around John's description. The first one is who is on the throne. This is the first thing that's most important. Who is on the throne? Once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircling the throne. So behold, a throne, and someone is sitting on it. Now let's remember that John is now a political exile. He's living in difficult circumstances. He's writing to Christians who are experiencing a level of persecution that most of us have and may never experience. They were struggling. And one of the primary things he wants them to get through this whole book of Revelation is he wants to remind them that no matter what is going on in your life and however things may appear and leaders rise and fall and nations rise and fall, friends, there's a throne and there's someone sitting on it. And he is worthy to sit on it. And he is good, and he is powerful, and he is mighty. He's just, we just need to be reminded. Somebody here today, okay, all of us, need to be reminded that God is on the throne. And no one or nothing can take him off that throne, which is incredibly good for us. And the one who is seated on the throne is worthy. He's dazzling. He's indescribable, overwhelming, and brilliance, and light, and life, and power. And the living creatures around the throne rightly call him the Lord God Almighty. And when we gather together as believers here at at the Kirk, and we sing together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, we get just a glimpse of what worship will be like in heaven. It's just a tiny little taste of what it will be like to gather before the throne and serve in his eternal kingdom. First, we must notice who is on the throne. Second, what is behind the throne? We're encircling it. It's a rainbow. The rainbow recalls the radiance of God's throne as seen by the prophet Ezekiel. There are a number of parallels with Ezekiel and Isaiah's throne room visions with Revelation 4. You can look it up this week, Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, I just want to point out here, though, this, this image of the rainbow. That's gotten co-opted. It has been hijacked. But this symbol, the very first meaning and the original, the OG, right? The meaning of the rainbow is God's faithfulness and mercy. That's what a rainbow means. The rainbow reminds us that God will never again totally destroy, that he is faithful, and that he is merciful. And that is the image that is encircling the throne of God, is an image of God's faithfulness. He is a God who keeps his promises. And what comes from the throne? From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. It's a way of declaring the awesomeness, the powerful, holy God. The language takes us back to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, where we're told this, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And everyone in the camp trembled, rightly so. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it by fire. God sent us fog this morning for our reading of Revelation 4. Did you notice that? The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. When we meet face to God, face to face with God in his presence, he is mighty and he is powerful. It's an overwhelming experience. 
In fact, we cannot even be in the presence of God without being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, or we will surely die. We're dealing with a being who is great and awesome. This same language is actually repeated in the unveiling of the seventh trumpet and seal and bowl in chapters 8, 11, and 16. We see the thunder, we see the lightning. It says, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Repeated at every point of the sevens in the book of Revelation. Again, this image reminds us we are dealing with someone who is terribly awesome and powerful. The God who calls us is more powerful than anything or anyone we have ever come into contact. What comes from the throne? What comes before the throne? What is in front of the throne? Well, there are seven lamps that were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God that were mentioned in chapter 1. Not seven different spirits, but the seven manifold, complete spirits of the Spirit of God that comes out of Isaiah 11. The seven attributes of the Spirit. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. How are we to understand this glassy sea that we sing about? Well, some understand it as a kind of barrier protecting from the holiness of God. It's kind of like a buffer zone that we can't get too close to his presence. It's kind of like typically no one sits in the front row. Besides, we have two front row Christians this morning. Thank you. But normally no one is in the front row because that's the buffer zone, right? You don't want to be in the spit zone because it's, it's just you don't want to get too close. So some see this glassy sea kind of like a buffer zone where God is so holy we can't even get that close. Some see it metaphorically as a sea through which we must travel to get to God. Kind of like the Red Sea experience or the Jordan that we must go through those waters in order to get to God. Another perspective is to see that in Revelation, water and the sea represents what is actually opposed to the will of God. All that strikes to undo and destroy the work of God. So in Revelation 13, specifically the beast emerges out of the sea out of the waters. And so if we understand the waters there as a a kind of negative thing representing the chaos of our lives, and maybe that's how the original audience would have understood it, because especially in those days, the open sea and water was seen as this powerful sort of unknown thing that cannot be contained. And so in this view, the glassy sea, that is water that is perfectly still, no waves, no chaos. If the sea represents the chaos of the world, then the image of God on the throne with the glassy sea is a God who has calmed all of the chaos of our world and brought everything into perfect order. The glassy sea in front of the throne. Again, this is one of those images we don't know exactly the meaning for, or maybe we're looking too deep. I don't know. There will be a lot of those throughout the book of Revelation. But I liked that explanation of it, and I'm sticking with it. Next, what is around the throne? It says, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. What are we to make of these 24 elders? Well, again, there are different perspectives. Some think that it mirrors the number of bodyguards that an emperor would have had in that day. So those who were important had people who would protect them, and those who were kind of regional governors would might have six or even twelve bodyguards, so to speak. But only the emperor, only the highest level of authority would have had twenty-four. So they say maybe that's the message there, is that that God is of the the greatest authority and power, and the twenty-four reflect that. Possibly. 
But I think uh, one that's a little more rich in theology is to understand that these 24 elders represent the people of God past and present. That is 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the New Testament church. So these 24 leaders around the throne are representative of the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament, all of God's people for all time, represented there, gathered around the complete number of God's people, all gathered around the throne of God. Finally, what is around the throne? In the center around the throne were four creatures covered with eyes in front and in back. Why four? Well, four is the number of the created order in the book of Revelation. We have four cardinal directions. We have four winds. We speak of the four corners of the earth. Some places have four seasons that are recognizable, right? Four is a kind of number that represents creation, completeness. And so these four creatures perhaps symbolically represent all creatures on the earth. They share characteristics with the seraphim and the cherubim that are in Ezekiel 1. They have six wings, right? Six is the number of completeness, so they're not, these creatures are not God, right? They're below that. They're part of the created order. And they're covered in eyes. Kind of creepy looking if you take it literally, but what do these eyes represent? Well, they, I think they represent the eyes of God, that God sees everything. The image of a creature covered in eyes is this all-seeingness. This omniscience, knowing all things, seeing all things. Nothing is lost to our God. He sees all and knows all. And while the purpose and the nuance of these creatures isn't always clear, we know that their purpose is. It's not to bring themselves glory. It's not to be magnificent in and of themselves. Their purpose is to worship the King of Heaven. They were created to worship the living God They were created to praise him day and night. And so, verse 8, day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. These are similar words to what the prophet Isaiah said when he was commissioned and he had a similar spectacular throne room vision of the Lord God high and lifted up, seated on the throne with a glorious train of his robe filling the temple And in this vision, also heavenly creatures worshiping before the throne, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Now the threefold emphasis of the word holy here, in the original Hebrew, it indicated something to the highest degree or order possible. In other words, King of kings, Lord of lords. God is the holiest of all beings. This is the quality of God that is felt by his creatures when they come into his presence. A sense of awe and wonder and fearfulness. Three is also God's number in the book of Revelation. So to say holy, holy, holy as it applies to God means he is perfect in wholeness. It is, it is a sign of completeness similar to the number seven, but used as it is applied to God. Now while the number and appearance of the elders and creatures isn't always clear, again, their purpose is. They were created to worship. And we should be reminded that when we come to a worship service, we are joining in to an expression of worship that has been going on a long time and will continue on far past our time here on this earth. We are simply joining a chorus of all of creation that cannot help but worship God as holy, holy, holy. 
One reliable indication that our theological vision is clear and strong is that we are a worshiping people, that we love to worship the King, that we are seeing God, that our, that our doxological deficit is, is being eliminated, that we are seeing God more clearly, is that we have a passion to worship Him. So how would this vision have landed on the original audience? I think similar to how it lands on us today. So for those who are being persecuted, it would have been incredibly encouraging. God is on the throne. He is in charge. He is powerful. He sees everything. He is in control. The rainbow symbolizing his faithfulness. He will keep his promises to the persecuted church. It would have been incredibly encouraging. Now for those who, like in some of the churches of Revelation, were accommodating too much to the surrounding culture, it would have been convicting and challenging. You get any of that? Convicting and challenging. For the complacent, for the self-righteous, or simply self-focused, this vision would have been disruptive. And I mean that in a good way. A holy disruption to their lives. And I think it has that effect on us as well. We're we're going about our lives, and life is, is lived in the ordinary, but we need this disruptive vision to remind us that there is something so much greater going on here. There's something so much bigger and more powerful, that no matter what our lives hold, that God is on the throne. So how do we respond to this glimpse into the throne room of heaven? We need to see that the one who is on the throne deserves our praise. The person of God, the plan of God, his power, the privileges of knowing him, they all call forth our absolute praise. To praise him for who he is and what he's done and what he has promised he will do. Now this word praise is pretty robust. In the Bible it represents a number of different ideas uh, that are translated into the word praise. There's a lot of overlap with the idea of worship and of glorifying God, but ultimately praise means to lift up. It means to exalt, to thank, to honor. It includes specific aspects of singing and declaring the goodness and wonder of God's person and character. These are all different aspects of what it means to praise God. And I think as, as this chapter ends, we're given two specific instructions on how to demonstrate our praise. First of all, it's to demonstrate our praise with our actions. Whenever these living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before the throne. There are so many images of the Bible that when people come into God's presence, when they're overwhelmed with who he is, they fall down on their knees or they even fall flat on their face, on their face because of the awesomeness and power and glory. And then what do they do? They take these, these crowns. And we don't know all the different crowns, but whatever crowns were given in heaven, they're not for us to wear around like a Burger King hat and look cool. Like they're crowns that are designed to worship God with not for us. They're for his glory. We only have them because of his goodness and mercy and grace. And so we see these elders, they're falling down on their knees and they're worshiping and they're taking tangible actions. They're taking these crowns and they're worshiping the king with them. I'm reminded when I read this verse of texts like Romans 12, which remind us that every aspect of our lives are to be offered as a sacrifice of worship to God. Paul wrote, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies. That doesn't mean physical bodies. This word means all of who you are, every aspect of who you are, to offer them as a sacrifice 
of worship. And so we demonstrate our praise with words and with actions. And here in just a few moments, we're going to give you opportunity to do that, to take the gifts that you've been given and to use them to serve within ministries of the church. And we want to encourage you to use those gifts for that. You know, early I want to provide a little nuance to something that, that Dan said, because I know what he meant by it, but he, he said, these gifts that you've been given are not for your career. And I want to add a word to that. They're not just for your career, right? Because sometimes what we see, the frustration we have pastorally, is we see people who are incredibly gifted and talented, and they will leverage those gifts for a paycheck, but when there's not a paycheck on the line, they're like, nah, I don't want to do that. No, he's given you those gifts to serve him, and you serve him in the marketplace, but we don't want to just reserve those things for that. He's given you those gifts in order to serve him in the context of the community. And part of how we do that is the ministries of this church. It takes, takes a lot of people to do the things that God has called us to do. And so this morning, we hope that you will take some time, that you will go out in the lobby, you'll talk to some folks, have some conversations, and just pray about ways that you could leverage the gifts, the talents that God has given you to serve specifically in collective ways with other people from your church, that God would take those talents and he would multiply them to bless people in this room and people in our community and people on the other side of the world that you'll never meet. It all happens because we take what we've been given and we use it to serve the Lord. Finally, verse 11, this passage ends by declaring our praise with a kind of hymn praising God as the creator. It says, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is a good place to end our doxology, thinking of God as creator. Because after all, if God can create everything, all that we can see, if he created everything from nothing, that's pretty powerful, don't you think? If God can do that, he can do anything. And if you're like me, you find yourself all the time questioning God, questioning his power, questioning his motives. God, why is this? Why can't you make this happen? Whatever. And sometimes we just need to be reminded, God created all this from nothing, just by his power and authority. Just, I want this to be, and it was. If he can do that, he's pretty powerful. He's beyond explanation. That's the kind of God that I want to believe in and trust and surrender my life, good grief. Why am I trying to take that position of power and authority for myself? How do we respond to an incredible vision like this? We respond in worship. We respond in praise. We respond by saying, in view of God's mercy, God, here's all that I have and all that I am. We join me as we pray about these things. Father, We know that in our finiteness, we cannot even begin to grasp the glory that John is talking about here. And even John, I'm sure that he was just exploding inside. He couldn't contain himself with just this brief glimpse of ultimate reality. But God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see. You would open our hearts, our ears, to see the wonders of who you are, of what you've done, of what you're doing, of what you're going to do. God, and it would cause us as your people to respond in praise with hearts exploding in wonder. Lord, we can only respond by saying, holy, holy, holy 
It's the Lord God Almighty. God, you are all-powerful. You created everything from nothing. You can do anything. God, so help us to surrender to you and to watch as you do far beyond our wildest imagination. God, grow our vision of who you are so that our lives will give testimony to the incredible hope we have, that we will be able to tell people we've seen the king on the throne and that changes everything. God, help us to see you more clearly and to respond to that with all that we are. We love you and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.